Welcome to Scrolling to Death. I'm Nikki, and today I'm joined by Dr. Allison Young. Hi, Dr. Young. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been excited to chat with you. Me too. So I know that you are a family physician practicing for over a decade. You're a mom of two. Uh, you run an Instagram account at The Smartphone Effect where we got connected and are sharing similar content all in the space of educating people on the impact of social media, on mental health and screens and all the things. So can you tell me more about you? Yeah, I have a five and a half year old and a two-year-old that keep me busy most of the time. I have a practice that keeps me busy. I have about 1,200 or so patients. Wow. I scaled back a little bit after I had my daughter because I just felt like I, I needed some me time. Mm-hmm. So, And then, of course, I got some me time and then like got into this space and really just felt quite passionate about it and putting the word out there. So now I feel like when I do have extra time, I, I try to like exercise and things like that. But I'm also just always reading research and trying to spit that back out to parents to educate. 1,200 patients is a lot of patients. What's the age ranges? Is it all the way from kids to adults? Yeah. So in I don't know how it is in the States. Like in Canada, especially where we're from, mm-hmm. you, you care for all the ages and we do most like okay. primary care pediatrics and things like that. So I see a lot of kids and teenagers and have access to psychiatrists or psychologists readily or quickly. So we end up Mm. managing a lot of sometimes pretty complex mental health ourselves as well. So you just kind of learn the skill set as you go along. So you've been reading up on research and I feel like once you know uh, how screens and social media is affecting kids, it's sort of hard to turn away from. And that's something that I got really passionate about too. And what turned me on to do what I'm doing, which is not, you know, and I left like a full career like to do this because there's, there's no turning back, right? It's like, once you know, you feel like everyone should know these things, right? Totally. And I find like, I have to sometimes sort of catch myself in interactions and things because I think sometimes, you know, I know more about how, the screens and the devices might be affecting kids and and parents as well. But you try not to make the visit all about that because you also have to catch them in a moment where they're ready to hear it and you can kind of fit it in so that it's it's not a defensive encounter. And so it's it's mm-hmm. been a lot of nuance because now I'm always thinking like, well, what about screens and what about this? And I have to keep myself well-rounded in my questioning. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, a lot of it does come down to that because what are we doing more than that? Nothing. I mean, we're looking at our phones and our screens and social media more than like most of our waking hours, right? Exactly. And one thing I I wanted to say to you too is like, I've never had a a parent, a, a child, a teenager, no one has ever come in saying my child is struggling or I am struggling. And I think it's because of devices. That's never happened. So I think if you talk about it and it comes up, then everyone will, of course, then says, yeah, for sure it has something to do with it. But I don't think people still quite gauge like how big of an impact it's having on their mental health. Yeah. And I wonder, I just wonder why that is. I had one friend, we were on a hike the other day and I was talking about some of these things and she's like, I have never heard any of this before you started doing your podcast. In my newsfeed, like my Apple newsfeed, I don't get any information when there's 
a lawsuit against Snap because kids have died or like that more kids are depressed than ever and, and dying by suicide more than ever. Like that's just not in people's mainstream news feeds. I know, which is great. And I think because you and I are in it and that those are the people we follow on that account and that's all the content we're getting. Like I, I often mm-hmm. think, how does everybody not know these things? Cause it's all that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think people are aware in a general sense, but they're, they're just not aware of how dangerous and how deep this gets. Yeah. It's even hard sometimes for me to find. I find a lot of this updated information on LinkedIn, actually, because I've just gotten connected with a lot of parent survivors. So parents whose kids have died by suicide or died from an overdose or something related to a social media harm. And then a lot of the attorneys that represent them and just a lot of people in the space. So LinkedIn's been really good for like me learning about these things. But as far as on regular news feeds, I have to search for the term social media to to get and then you get all these like lighthearted celebrity things but then you also can find some of the other studies so i just recommend that people if they're on instagram follow accounts like ours just to get that well-rounded data and research and stories from people who have been affected negatively um because i think it can get drowned out and also if you're gonna let your kids on Instagram or social media, have them follow our accounts too, you know, age appropriately. Yeah. Some parents that follow me in my practice it comes up and I tell them about it. And, and some of mm-hmm. kids follow and they tell me like, they see your stuff. And I mean, I don't know what they really think or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think it is good for them to see for sure. Yeah. You know, earlier we start talking about it with kids, even my eight-year-old, she knows that I have a podcast. She knows it's about social media and how it can be harmful. And so I've started introducing lightly some of these topics and I think that it can start that young. So your boots on the ground, right? You are seeing, what'd you say, like 1,200 patients, um, a lot of younger people. And so at a baseline, before we get into how it's affecting them, what age generally are you seeing kids that have smartphones in their hands? Oh God, (laughs) so young. Yeah, like by the time they're eight, nine, 10, a lot of them do already. And they'll be on it when I come into the, into the room, it's going to become my, my new biggest pet peeve, but they'll be on it, you know, in one moment of boredom in the office when I walk in and then they may or may not put it away right away, but it's definitely young. And by the time they're Mm -hmm. teenagers, they all have it and they have it out in the room and it's visible. Okay. I was just talking with a neuroscientist yesterday, Dr. Carl Marcy, and he was talking about the importance of boredom. And it reminds me like, remember when I just remember before phones and you would sit in a doctor's office and it would seem like a million years and they would have magazines or something, or you would like study the pictures on the walls (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) But like, that's so important. Don't you think to just be bored and not, I'm like an eight year old doesn't need something to pass the time in a room. I know. And I think when the kids are that young and even like, I'll see obviously babies and two-year-olds on the phone as well watching a video. And I think part of it comes from the parents not wanting their child to be disruptive or, or like not an embarrassment, but they just, they want to make sure their kids stays calm and well-behaved during their encounter. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's for their appointment or whatever. And I Mm -hmm. like, it's okay. They can run around. Like I'm not bothered. Okay. So you're seeing kids with phones in your practice, like at eight, nine and 10 years old, like their own phones. Yeah. Okay. And what about social media? Maybe that's harder for you to be able to tell, but from what your, your questionnaires and what you're asking patients, when are kids getting social media? 
I would say 95% are on by the time they're in high school. I've done some talks mm-hmm. too, and I'll ask parents like by a raise of hands and you know, there's always one or two that their kids aren't yet, but so 95%, I would say by high school or on social media. I imagine over time, it's become more and more obvious that this usage at younger ages is a problem. Do you have any aha moments with a specific case or patient that you were like, this is a problem, I think, and this is getting dangerous? I think for me, it was, you know, we've all been aware that there have been increases in mental health visits coming for years. Like I've been practicing now for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. My colleagues and I have all been aware of it. And we've talked about it. And we're like, is this just kids these days? Like, what's up with these kids? They seem so um, struggling so much from a mental health perspective. And I think it was when I came back from my second mat leave, which would have been in 2022. Obviously, things didn't get better over COVID. So there was more visits after that. But I started seeing more and more kids that were coming in, being started on medications for whatever it would be, depression, anxiety, ADHD, because they checked all the boxes, they fit the criteria. But I was seeing kids that would be on one, two, three medications, we'd be switching medications and they would just come back and consistently not better, never better, no better. And that's not typically what you would see, right? Um, you would see a, a response. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was, I was like, what is going on? So I think the aha moment for me was I started asking the kids the same questions. And I said, what do you do for fun? What brings you joy? Are you in any extracurricular activities? And I, mm-hmm realize that over and over again, I was getting the same response where they would just kind of look at me and they, cause the phone's always out in the room. They would like notion to their, mm-hmm. they, oh, I don't know. I just go on my phone or I just go on YouTube or I just play video games. And it was like this, it just kept happening. So that was for me when I was like, okay, I need to look into this. And when I started going into the research, I just, I started telling my colleagues like, this is a thing and this is a bad thing. So I just felt like I had to speak out about it. I, I just felt like there was no choice because it seemed like parents weren't really making the connection, which I understand. Mm-hmm. So that was it for me. Why don't parents make the connection? Do you think? I feel because it's so ubiquitous for everybody now. And it's so entrenched in our everyday worlds that they just sort of feel like this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And they feel like this must just be teenagers these days. And this is what they do. And because all of their friends are going through similar things that just the way of the world. That's, I mean, that's my best guess. Yeah. And again, I think the lack of education, right? I don't think that they are aware of all the studies that show that mental health has become so much worse since the onset of smartphones and everyday life. Like people just don't know that stuff. One thing that's been helpful for me and I hope is helpful for parents is understanding how screen use is affecting their brains and their brain development. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Their brains are developing so much through adolescence, right? And that prefrontal cortex is is fully developed in their mid-20s. And the screen really blocks the ability for the brain to appropriately develop. I mentioned Dr. Carl Marcy, and he talks about the importance of face-to-face connections in wiring the brain correctly and that the screen time obviously blocks you from having face-to-face connections with between parent and child. You did a really good breakdown on Instagram about how dopamine works. I think that that might be helpful if you can give us like a quick rundown of what's happening within our kids' brains when they access devices. Yeah, like I, I think most people are familiar with dopamine and the idea that it 
motivates us to do things that we think will give us pleasure. Um, I think most people are familiar with this idea that you said about the prefrontal cortex, and that's what's different in children, is that this area of the brain that's responsible for decision making and insight, judgment, and a lot in a lot of ways, your personality and your ability to socialize. Mm-hmm. It's it's not fully formed until your mid 20s. And I, I, I just wonder if that's even going to change over time. Like if we're not exercising those muscles, so to speak, are we also not going to develop that part of our brain until later in life? I don't know. Remains to be seen. Mm. But so what's happening with the dopamine is we all have a baseline level of dopamine and that is going to give us the motivation to get up in the morning and have a shower, feed ourselves, keep us alive. Basically every time that we experience something that we think might give us pleasure or that gives us pleasure, we get a spike in dopamine and we like how that feels. But what people may not know is that after you get a spike, you get this compensatory drop in dopamine. And that's because we have to keep homeostasis within our body to get back to that same baseline. So when you get a drop, that's when you'll find that you're starting to have cravings to seek out that pleasurable experience again. As it relates to kids and social media, if you imagine that kids are on their phones based on one study for a median of four and a half hours a day. So half of kids are more than that. Um, Mm -hmm. Nine and a half hours a day on screens in general. You can imagine how many peaks and drops in dopamine that we're getting every single day. It's just nonstop. One way I heard it described, which I really like, is, you know, our dopamine receptors like to be tickled, but they don't like to be bludgeoned. So when you're constantly getting these spikes in dopamine, what happens is the receptors for the dopamine actually start to downregulate themselves or turn off. And then in more severe cases of addiction, they actually start to die. So what happens first is that you're going to see this drop in your baseline of dopamine. And what you're going to see from kids is that they're no longer motivated or driven to do things that otherwise previously would have brought them joy. So you'll start to see, I don't want to go to school. That's a huge one. I don't want to go see my friends. I don't want to hang out with my parents. They just want to be on their devices because that's what's giving them those big peaks of dopamine. And then over time, as that baseline continues to drop and those receptors continue to downregulate, they are no longer even going to get pleasure from being on their devices themselves. But they keep trying to get that peak back. So they keep trying to go back and play more. And that's when you really get into the addiction. And we know that anybody who is truly addicted to any substance is not happy because of it. So right. um, this is a, a behavioral addiction. It's, it's a little bit different than substance addictions, but the same premise, that's when you start to see the real like isolation and the loneliness and the depression and all those other factors being affected. And parents can help their children to not experience this by how, like what is a couple of tips just based off of this dopamine discussion? Yeah. So a couple of simple tips. You're trying to keep in mind that you want to bring their baseline back up. So they need meaningful breaks in their use throughout the day. So the three big ones that I could say, number one would be school. They're at school for the majority of their day. So 
we need schools to step up and and give meaningful cell phone policies in school that are forced and implemented. Mm-hmm. Parents could also choose not to send a phone to school with their mm-hmm. that would be great. Um, and I know there's differing differing opinions on the the school policies. I personally feel the longer of a consistent break they can get during the day, the better. Some schools will have it, you know, not during class, but you can run right to your locker in between classes and get back on the phone. And then I feel like if we think about it from this dopamine perspective and getting the baseline back up, the longer the break, the better. So I think if if there's no phones allowed during school hours, that would be the best policy. And I think anecdotally too like the longer that we're away from our phones some will argue it makes the craving stronger to go back I don't think that's true I think the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. so that's my take on that so school and then tech downtime within your day as a family so saying we're gonna have a break at dinner we're gonna have a break an hour before bedtime we're gonna have no phones on Sundays we're gonna you know whatever that may be within your own family can really mm-hmm. enforce those breaks And then sleep is the other massive one that, you know, kids are not sleeping and they should not have phones in their bedroom overnight. That should be a non-negotiable. So there's Mm -hmm. those three things. What I've read in a lot of the studies is that problems with mental health tend to start becoming much more relevant after kids have been on social media or video games for two or more hours. If there can be a goal in place to limit that usage to two hours or less a day, and I would say like combine video games and social media, that's like the holy grail for a teenager. Keeping in mind that, you know, most of them are already on their phones for at least an hour a day during the school day. There's that way to bring up your, your dopamine. And then the other thing is not to layer dopamine enhancing activities. So an easy example of this would be if you go out for a walk, don't take your phone with you because as soon as you have the dopamine effects from the phone and the dopamine effects from the walk, the phone is going to give you a bigger peak of dopamine and it's going to naturally make that walk feel less pleasurable. Detach the two, you will enjoy your walk more and then um, that'll increase motivation to do those non-screen activities later as well. Even the se- using a second screen, so uh, like watching a, a TV show or a movie with your kids and then also having your phone in your hand, that sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, this is insane that I'm not stimulated enough by one screen that I have to have another one. It's crazy. I know. And I always go back to like, it's so hard for adults. We have like, we have such a hard time with it. And so we have to stop, you know, assuming that our kids could handle the same things that we can, because it's just, yeah, can't imagine having a little person's brain and experiencing what they are now. Yeah, we're fully developed in our prefrontal cortex. And we still give in to the impulses to grab our phone when we shouldn't. (laughs) So you mentioned sleep. And one thing I heard recently that was shocking was um, Amy Neville is a mom. Her son, Alexander, bought an oxy pill through Snapchat. And he took it and had fentanyl and he died. And he was 14. And so she uh, she did an interview with me. She goes around and gives educational sessions in schools and to, to groups of children and adults. But she was doing an educational session for kindergartners. And she found out that a lot of them were being given tablets at home. And she shared with me that a lot of these kindergartners were using those tablets during bedtime. And their parents were telling them, just watch something until you fall asleep. Ugh. 
and I died inside. And I know instinctively that this is just terrible, but like, tell me what your reaction is to that. Yeah, that is terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kindergartners. Yeah. Again, I think probably multifactorial in the sense that parents don't understand how harmful that is. There's this notion that screens calm kids, right? And I think if you aren't educated to know that that's a short-term fix that actually has longer-term behavioral issues, then, Mm -hmm. you know, you might just keep doing that. I cite a lot, like, we're living in a different time where we have dual working households often, like parents Mm -hmm. are busy, they're stressed out themselves in their, you know, work or personal lives. And it's Mm -hmm. easy to give that so that, you know, you don't have to do that bedtime routine, I guess. It could be argued that all this screen stuff that we talk about with kids, like it's, it's a parenting issue, not really a kid issue. I think that yeah. we're given screens that much at that young. I, I just keep calling it this slippery slope. Like it sets the stage for them to be the kids that are going to get a phone in their hand at age five and get on social media. And like, that's just the natural progression. So if you're not aware of it at that age, that's, yeah, it's dangerous. And what is that going to look like when they're in their 20s and 30s? Like, how can this overuse of screens affect them as they get into adulthood? Yeah. So I think kids these days are really using screens as a coping mechanism for any uncomfortable feelings. And so, you know, if they feel anxious about something, if they feel down about something, it's a lot easier to grab a phone or a tablet and watch something or put your headphones on and listen to music instead of tackling the issue. And I think if parents aren't helping to facilitate those interactions, well, how do they know any better? So mm-hmm. again, it's, it's this slippery slope to then you have adults that cannot cope with any emotions. They can't cope with handing things in on time. I mean, we see this in the education system where my husband's a high school teacher and he, he struggles because, you know, there's not even deadlines anymore. Like the, the school system has kind of accommodated that. So there's just this lack of coping and meeting deadlines, which then translates into you get a job and are you going to be able to attend your job? It's, uh, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Is, is there an increase in ADHD or ADHD like symptoms? hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. And actually I had a statistic on it. It was a Canadian statistic, but even the number of prescriptions have gone up like 30 or 40% in the last mm-hmm. decade within Ontario. So, you know, we're prescribing more, people are presenting more, You can now Mm -hmm. get stimulants from like video clinics online where you just Mm, check the boxes and you get the prescription. So unless practitioners are are digging deeper about why the symptoms are coming up now or why are they worse now, what can we do to try to remedy things without medication first? It's just, Mm -hmm. it keeps getting, everything is getting medicated. Okay, so million dollar question, when should we let our kids or teens have a phone? And then like what type of phone would you recommend? I think the top two reasons that parents give their kids a phone is number one, safety, and number two, peer pressure. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if we look at the safety perspective, I would argue that the vast majority of kids in elementary school don't need a phone. You generally know where they are all the time. Mm -hmm. 
I had a mom in the other day, which did give me a different perspective in terms of she's separated from her partner. And so there's a lot of conflict over phones and one parent having different opinions. And the, the dad wants the child to have their own phone because he doesn't want to have to go through the mom to get a hold of his kids. So, I mean, there's mm-hmm. always nuance and, and exceptions to these things. Sure. When it comes to safety, I would say generally when, when the child is starting to stay at home alone because we don't have landlines anymore, or um, I've heard parents say like if they're going to be at sporting events for many hours without their parents, you want to be able to get a hold of them. Um, mm-hmm. In those cases, I think it's reasonable to get a phone. And I don't think any child should start with a smartphone. They should get a dumb phone, talk and text only. In the States there, you guys are luckier than we are because you have access to some of the child safe phones like Bark and TrueMe and all those things that we don't as of yet really have access to. But that's a really good mm-hmm. idea because they also screen for dangerous content uh, once they yep. social media. But so yeah, dumb phone. And then I just encourage parents, like if it's, if it's the giving in because of the peer pressure, be creative for as long as you can. Like if they want to be able to talk, video talk with their friends, can they do that on the family desktop or the iPad or Mm -hmm. your phone? There's a lot of ways that you can get away with not giving them their own device that they have access to all the time. Because again, it's Mm -hmm. just a slippery slope. Once you give it, you can't go back. Yeah. I take issue with what we're calling these phones that are more stripped down. So yeah, they're called dumb phones, which is not like a something you want, you know? And then the kids safe phone. So I appreciate Bark and Trumi and Pinwheel and all these companies for making phones that are stripped down and safer for teenagers. But when they call them kids safe and they've trade some of them have, you know, trademark similar terms, I just take issue with that too. Like we're just telling parents that your kid needs this phone. Well, most kids don't need a phone. Maybe we should call it teen safe. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I, I have the exact same feeling as you about that. And I feel like again, I keep saying this slippery slope thing, but I think I always kind of caution people on buying into this idea of of an idea that a business is selling you. Like I also take issue with, you know, for example, I just posted something today about one of the school districts um, around us is looking at a cell phone ban. And there was an article written and someone was saying, this is not the effective way to do it. We just need to teach kids how to use the phones responsibly. Well, this guy comes from a company that sells Mm -hmm. that option to school boards. So it's like, Oh my God. Of course you're going to push that agenda, but I don't feel that that should be a substitute to a cell phone policy. Sure. Do it in addition, but don't do it instead of a policy. Like I just, that stuff drives me nuts. Yeah. The phones in schools, that whole topic. I have one post on Instagram. You may have seen that's at like four and a half million views. And it's just like every day there's (laughs) tons of more comments and views on that post. And I don't really know what to do with that because I agree that children should not have their phones in schools, but some of these parents are so pissed off about it. There's so many varying opinions on it. And it's just such a layered like right now, I just feel like I'm struggling with my kids' devices in their schools and being given iPads in kindergarten that have adult YouTube access on them. Like, what are we doing? If I can't even control it in my own kids' school, then like, I don't know where to start. <laughs> True. And I think, again, like that argument, parents that are f- against it, there's two common things, right? Well, one in Canada, but two in the States yeah. is how am I going to get a hold of my child, which I've 
you know, teachers have told me time and time again, like your children are safe. They can contact you whenever they want to. You can contact them whenever, like there's phones in every classroom. So Mm -hmm. that's not really an, it's not a great argument. And then, yeah, of course in the States, there's the concern about the school shootings. Yeah. With the school shootings, a teacher, a high school teacher I interviewed was like, it's actually unsafe to have all the kids get their phones out in an emergency because there there will be noises coming from the phones. It doesn't keep the kids as safe as possible to have their devices in their hand. I understand a parent sitting at home realizing this is happening and not being able to get a hold of their kid and make sure their kid is okay. Yeah. But if the phone is causing them to be in more danger, then is that what we want over hearing from them? I, I don't know. It's, well, and it's tricky. Like if we already know that a child having a phone in their backpack or on their desk is more detrimental to learning than having a phone Mm -hmm. or locker, then even if you're not putting a ban in place and the child is allowed to bring the phone to school, it should be in the locker. And so if they're shooting, that would follow that they're not going to be running to their locker to get their phone anyways. So yeah. When you get into the nuances of it, it doesn't quite make sense, <laughs> these arguments. But I loved what you shared today about the dopamine hits because I think it can be so detrimental to even if it's in their locker and now they're sitting in class, they're not paying attention because they cannot wait to get to their locker to check who's texted them back or what, how many comments they got on their last Instagram post or Snapchat. Yeah. So we talked about phones. Let's briefly talk about – so when should children have social media is my question. But – for me, I feel like never. I feel like I don't. I feel like the only reason I use it is to promote this message and get people to listen to these interviews and learn more about this. I can't responsibly recommend that my children ever get social media. For me, it's never added anything to even my adult life, and in fact, it sort of made me like more frustrated. It wasted my time. Just throwing my stance out there that. I think you need to be responsible in, in teaching them about what social media is. But if someone were to ask me what age my children should have social media, I'm going to say not ever. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about it? Yeah, I don't know if you saw the post that I did about it. I, I felt like I wanted to put something out there because obviously people do ask and I wanted to give like a tangible answer that parents could run through. And I guess I'll go through it and then maybe tell you why I, I also think in a general sense that it's exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I came up with these four R's. So responsible, respectful, resilient, and risk aware. So Mm -hmm. responsible would be, are they going to school regularly? Or are they skipping class? Are they putting forth their best effort? Can you trust them at home alone, maybe with a younger sibling? Do they do their homework and their chores without a big fight? These kind of basic things. And Mm -hmm respectful would be, do they respect you and your household rules? Or do they talk back a lot? Do they break rules a lot, sneak around? Do they respect their siblings, their teachers? How do they interact with their friends? Because if they already have a lot of friend drama without social media, that's just going to escalate when they get it. Resilient. I think this is the last two really set apart the younger kids from older kids. Resilient is really, you know, Do they have a a sense of self or a sense of who they are? Do they have strong morals and values that they could defend? The most at-risk kids for harm from social media are going to be those kids that have pre-existing already mental health struggles. 
right? This sense of self, which as you say, like I really don't think most kids or teenagers have a really well-rounded sense of who they are. They're part of being a teenager and an adolescent is experimenting and being influenced by others and trying out different things. So I do say 16 plus, but I think that most kids are, are probably not ready at 16. And, but I also realize that parents want to be able to give them exposure before they leave the house. So there's that whole thing, right? And then risk aware. So have you sat down and talked to your kids about the risks, including cyberbullying, predators, sextortion, AI, all these things? And could they yeah. write an essay about it? Like, do they have not only an understanding of what it is, but like a true appreciation and an ability to put themselves in that perspective to see how it could harm them or someone they love? I think run through those things. Kids are definitely not ready. There are rare, very, very responsible kids who will be just fine. But okay, thank you. That's super helpful. And I'm gonna I did see that Instagram post and I'm gonna share it so that people can can get that snapshot. And I feel like that's the most realistic way that I've seen to look at it. And just today, there was a mom that shared her daughter doesn't have social media and her um, friends for a school project were going to create a group chat on Snapchat. And she was like, well, I don't have Snapchat. And they went ahead and created the group without her. And her mom basically told her, if you are strong enough to say, I don't have Snapchat, then you should also say, hey, let's do it on a regular text group. Right. You know? And She's she's sticking the mom's staying strong on it. So many parents give in to the social media question because their kids are left out. And when it comes to a school project, like do we really need to be doing schoolwork on social media platforms? I don't think well, so. Well, and I think again, if parents understood the the data about, you know, FOMO and loneliness, like they would realize that you you might give in with good intention about the peer pressure, but the studies would show that then once they start using it for over two hours a day, they're more lonely than they were before. So it's not necessarily a fix. Isn't that crazy that a set of platforms that was supposed to make you feel more connected actually makes you feel more lonely? Yeah. Sad. It's the comparison, right? Like constantly comparing yourself to other people. Yeah. So if you had to narrow it down to one important message for parents from you, so what's the number one thing you'd want parents to think more about, implement, um, anything related to social media screens? So there's this idea in medicine of primary versus secondary prevention. So primary prevention would be preventing a harm from occurring in the first place, like eating healthy and exercising to prevent a heart attack. And then secondary prevention would be someone's already had a heart attack and now we're taking some medications to try to prevent another heart attack. I think that social media really falls well into this idea of before you give a child a smartphone, you're you're really preventing harm or doing primary prevention. And as soon as you hand over that device, no matter how great your intentions are, the restrictions you put on them, it can get away from you so quickly. And so at that point, you really are looking at harm reduction. And so I would just say to parents, stay with primary prevention as long as you can. I know it's hard, just like it's really hard to eat healthy and exercise, 
your kids will be better off down the road. I see them in my office and I see how much they're struggling and all these parents wish that they would have waited longer. I got permission from a 19-year-old patient of mine to share her story because it's been a, a several years long story with her. So she's 19 now. I started seeing her about four years ago. So at the time, like, wasn't asking about social media. I really didn't go there. Um, but she came with mm -hmm. anxiety. I think she was grade 10 at the time. Again, a kid who had pre-existing anxiety. I think I'd seen her once like five years prior when she was just a little girl for, for some anxiety. But she came back, was feeling really anxious and had tried counseling and that kind of thing. So anyways, we put her on medication. She wasn't getting any better. Over the next couple of years, things just got so bad and her primary complaint became insomnia. So she would come in and she could barely keep her eyes open and she would say, I just can't sleep. And so I can't stay awake during the day. So then she started feeling depressed and she was cutting at one point. She at one point was admitted to psychiatry. She'd seen a couple different psychiatrists. I, I went back in her chart yesterday to just kind of review things and went through. She, at the age of 19, has been tried on 10 different medications oh my God. for various things, anxiety, depression, at one point ADHD. She'd been put on sleeping pills. She'd been put on pills to keep her awake in the day. Like it was, it was wild. So she was one of the ones when I came back from my mat leave that we we dove back into things. And when I started talking to her about her screen time and we backtracked in time, we realized that when she first started coming to see me in grade 10, it was shortly after she had got a smartphone. So mm -hmm. that was what really started things off. And then we would look at her screen time together and she was primarily, because she works a job, she goes to school now, she was primarily using her phone all night. And so she was up all night thinking in her mind for so long, like, I'm anxious, I can't sleep. And so this phone is helping me to soothe my anxiety. I'm using it to help myself. But it's actually caused so much difficulty throughout her life. And so, you know, at one point I said, like, I don't think you need medication. I think you need sleep. Um, and so we're working on that. And she's actually made strides. She started putting her phone outside her bedroom at night because she's 19 now. So, you know, reasonably, mom was like, she's got to do this on her own now and figure it out. But I think she's making those connections and it's helping. But it's just really heartbreaking when you think about like how many years she went through and all of the medication and everything else. It's just, it's pretty crazy. So she wanted me to put the message out there that, you know, not sleeping like really destroyed my sense of well-being and my ability to live in the present moment for so long. And that it was the phone the whole time and that no one really thought of that as the root cause and the thing that needed to be put away in order to get on the right track. And in the decision to give your kids a phone, think about this. And that's why we should delay. But when your kids get a phone, you really have to teach them these primary rules around how to use it. And that big one is it doesn't go in the bedroom with you when you go to sleep. Yeah. I know your parents are probably scrolling on their phones in their bed and maybe they should stop doing that too. I'm raising my hand. Yeah. But like you are a child with a developing brain that can't put it down. And so there are different rules and that's okay. Yes. And there are always different rules for children and parents and that's just how it is. And we should model it. Absolutely. But 
they, they need to have boundaries set early. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's really beneficial for parents to hear how it's actually affecting kids because this sharing research and sharing advice and things like that only goes so far. And there are probably parents listening to this that their kids are tired in the daytime or feeling anxious. And maybe we just just need to look at their screen time, look at their phone use and set some better boundaries for them, right? A hundred percent. Yes. All right, Dr. Young, thank you so much for being here. This was super fun. I really enjoyed learning from you and I know listeners will too. Remind listeners where they can connect with you. Um, So you can find me on Instagram at the smartphone effect. Give Dr. Young a follow. So thank you again for being here. Thank you, Nikki. This was fun. 